All right, well, thank you guys for coming to the 10th and final summer Thursday night table talk Bible study. It's the longest title. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open with us. And it, please do not feel bad if you're continuing to eat. That is totally fine. Uh, do not feel weird about that. But if you have your Bible, open with us to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And our plan tonight is to finish this uh, short book, Paul's last letter, written from prison in Rome awaiting his, his execution. Uh, I'm going to ask Scott to pray for us, and then we will, I'm going to say a couple words about chapter 3, and then we'll jump into chapter 4. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we're thankful once again to be able to gather here and uh, just uh, enjoy fellowship and enjoy uh, food, and uh, we're once again thankful for uh, Wes and Holly in particular for all that they have done these, these 10 weeks, so thankful for their uh, sacrificial love for us and their service to us and so many others, uh, even those who are going over to the nursery now. Uh, we're thankful for all those who serve to, to make uh, this night possible. And uh, as we come to your word, I pray you'd help us to be attentive to your word. And uh, I pray that uh, we would be able to apply uh, your word to our lives. And I pray that you would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things uh, from this uh, sort of last will and testament from the Apostle Paul. Uh, some powerful, powerful verses uh, in, uh, that we're going to look at tonight. So I pray that uh, we'd be attentive to it and we'd apply this truth to our lives and we'd be changed uh, as a result of studying this passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me just reread a little bit from last week. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, what is called Paul's vice lists. People often refer to them because he lists a lot of sins close together. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now just pause right there. It would be very tempting to think that this list is, is only really describing the world out there. It would just feel, you know, that would be nice and comforting. We, we don't really have any issues in the church. It's just that's describing that, that evil world out there. Well, certainly it is a true description of the world. That's true. But I would like to make a point here that I think he's targeting especially false teachers and false believers within the church, professing Christians. And look at verse 5 to sort of confirm that. At the end of this list, what does he say? having the appearance of godliness, but, deny, but denying its power, avoid such people. And then he describes false teachers. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now just think about this for a moment. That list of sins is not just about the people out there. That's a struggle. First of all, it's a struggle with all of our flesh because our, our flesh is always wanting to incline toward love of self, love of pleasure, love of money, being all these different things, disobedient to authority. But Paul's particularly warning that there's going to be people who have the appearance outwardly of godliness, that they look in some ways very religious or even Christian outwardly, but when you get close and you start looking more carefully, you realize that under the surface, are all these worldly passions and pleasures. So could you have someone who's claiming to be a teacher of the Bible who loves money and promotes that in the way that they teach? Yes. You actually, you can probably be pretty popular if, if you teach the Bible, teach the love of money, which is kind of, would be hard to get past, or the love of self. Will teachers begin to teach a kind of self-love even within the Christian community? Yes, and we see that today. I mean, if you turn on Christian television, you're going to hear love of money, love of self. Uh, that's going to be what's taught as, as supported by uh, Scripture. Uh, I heard one TV preacher, I'm not making this up. I won't even say his name right now. It's not even the point. I heard one TV preacher, I wrote it down on a napkin so I would not forget. He said, anybody who says money won't make you happy just hadn't had enough. Let all God's people not say amen at that moment. Another quote from the same, it was, I'm sorry, but it was the same sermon. He just said, uh, there's nothing on earth as beautiful as a $100 bill. I was also in the sermon. So anyways, you, in the last days, people will be lovers of money. They will have the appearance of godliness, but deny the power. And so then, all this is leading to today's passage, because we're going to sort of wrap back around. And before we get back to the, this theme again, Paul is going to tell Timothy, 
don't let this be you. Flee youthful passions. Find people who pursue the Lord out of a pure heart. And then he says, know the scriptures that you were brought up in. Continue in sound teaching. Continue in the scriptures. And you look at uh, the end of chapter 3. Let's start in verse 14. These are just too good not to read again. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Greg, you were saying uh, earlier this week that uh, it can be hard, earlier today, that, that it can be hard to sort of stay with sound, healthy doctrine. Can you expand a little bit on what, what makes it so challenging to obey Paul's admonition here? Um, it's challenging because sound doctrine takes work. It means we have to, to think hard, we have to read a lot, we have to ponder what we read, we have to make fine distinctions, we have to be nuanced. Um, I mean, if you've ever, you know, paid any attention to a study of the Trinity, um, you know, how, how we understand, for just for instance, you know, our doctrine of God, uh, we, we can quickly delve into heresy, even meaning well, like, you know, the Trinity, a lot of times we want to say, well, you know, God's three in one, that means three parts, okay, one part, two parts, and in reality, God doesn't have parts. God's a simple being. He can't be divided up into less than he is. Um, and if that makes your mind hurt, then that's okay. But that's part of what we have to do in sound doctrine to stay true to the Bible is we can't go further than the Bible goes. Um, and if sometimes that leaves us scratching our head, that's okay. Um, but we still, our, our, all our formulations of what we believe, uh, how we are to live out the Christian faith has to be tethered to Scripture. And we can't go outside of Scripture uh, as though outside is better. But that's just one example. That's good. Scott? Yeah, I just thought of the false teacher you mentioned, and I just started thinking of the quotes that you said. I'll just throw in one more. Uh, he said, I think he said, I'm, th- I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of the same guy you're thinking of, but he said, uh, when I give, he said, I'm sick for days. Isn't, isn't that what he said? Yes. Uh, so anyway, every time I give, I'm sick for days. Every time sick I for days. give, I'm sick for, for days. So. I, know, I know the Lord loves a cheerful giver, he said, but that's just not my gift. I mean, that's literally, that's, that's a TVN preacher, like a for real, actual, supposed pastor. Yeah. So that he, he's in my head right now, but should we go to verse chapter four or you want to go? <laughs> let, let me say okay. one more thing about the end of chapter 13 with why should we stick with sound doctrine in God's word? Uh, a pastor had pointed this out uh, uh, maybe a number of years ago and it stuck in my mind. I actually made a note of it in my Bible back then. I thought this was interesting. So look again at familiar verse 316. All scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, God breathed is a very literal translation. It's literally the word God and the word breath put together as one Greek word. We've got to say the Greek word. This is a great Greek word. Theonoustos. That is worth memorizing. Seriously, it's just, you know, theos, God, like theology, and then noustos is like the word pneuma, spirit, breath, wind. Literally, it's theonoustos, God breathed. It's like when you hold your hand up to your mouth and you're talking like, I am right now. Uh, when this happens, you can feel, your, you can feel your, the air from your words hitting your hand as you're talking. Your words are breathed out. That, that's how you make sounds. That's how, you, that's how you actually communicate. Well, Paul says, Scripture is so intimately connected with God's speech that the words are literally breathed out. They are theonoustos. They are God-breathed words. And so, if you want a, a, a verse for the authority of Scripture, this is our verse. And, and a cross-reference that this pastor pointed out to me that I hadn't thought of. You don't have to turn there, but you could even jot this down if you wanted to. Matthew 4, 4, when Jesus is confronting Satan, he says, quoting the Old Testament, Jesus says to Satan, as it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Does that sound pretty close to God breathed? Every word that comes from the mouth of God? Well, that's Jesus in Matthew 4, 4. But Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, which says the same thing. That man does not live by bread alone, but by the very words coming out of the mouth of God. And so, just incredible. Think about this. This isn't a doctrine that Paul made up, right? The authority of Scripture. Moses in the Torah is saying all of God's words come out of his mouth. Scripture is breathed out by God. These are the very words coming out of the mouth of God. Then Jesus picks up where the Holy Spirit through Moses left off, and Jesus repeats it and says, yes, all the Old Testament at the time, all of Scripture is coming out of the mouth of God. And then Paul picks up on Jesus and Moses and says the same thing in a slightly different word. 
All Scripture is theonustos. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So that's the Torah. That's Moses. That's the Gospels. That's Jesus. That's the epistles. That's Paul. All of them saying the same thing, which is that God's words are coming out of his very mouth, as it were. These, these words are as authoritative and as infallible and as inerrant as God himself uh, is. Well, getting into, because this leads into where we're going um, in chapter 4, um, I, I can't remember where I originally heard this, but it's something that has stuck with me. Um, to reject God's written word is to reject God himself. Um, some people of a more liberal, moderate persuasion accuse us uh, because of our high view of Scripture of bibliolatry, like, oh, you're worshiping the Bible, you're adding you know, a fourth person of the Trinity. No, in reality, we're just treating the Bible based on what the Bible says about itself. Like, that's all we're doing. The Bible makes these claims. We're not adding any claims to the Bible. We're simply saying this is what the Bible itself says about itself, um, and therefore, that's why we reverence this book. We receive this book as, God, as if God himself were speaking directly to us uh, when we read. And so this is why this is so important. Um, you know, the same way Jesus is so closely connected to the church that if you persecute the church, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? If you are to reject the written word of God, you're rejecting God himself because God is speaking and revealing himself through its pages. Yeah, I mean, I said this last time, I mean, an app, app, lots of application for these verses, but one is that we would love the Word, that we would see it as precious, the Bible is a gift. Uh, and you think about missionaries who translated it, I mentioned that last time, uh, Cameron Townsend spent 10 years translating the Bible uh, for the Kachikel Indians who didn't have any written language, he came up with the alphabet and everything, why would he do that for 10 years? Well, it was because the Bible is so, it's, it's so precious, so we should translate it, but we should just soak in it, love it, revere it, treasure it. I think of George Whitfield, who I, I mentioned in a minute, but he used to read the Bible and his Matthew Henry commentary, and he'd read it on his knees like every morning. I mean, just, he just loved the Bible, and we should love and revere the Bible because it's the Word of God is breathed out by God. Well, that's really good. And uh, just, just you, many of you know this verse, hold your spot and turn to 2 Peter to the right uh, near the back of your New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And if you look there near the very end of that letter... I'll just start in verse 14 of 2 Peter 3, 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, uh, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. We all say amen. Which the ignorant and unstable twist, this is Paul's letters, they twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures, which means what are Paul's letters? Scripture. And that's in the first century from the apostle Peter, a contemporary of Paul. So already uh, within, within a very short time of Paul writing his letters, another apostle is saying Paul's letters are on the same level as the scriptures, as in the Old Testament. So immediately within the first century, you've got Paul's letters being put on the same level as the Torah, as the prophets. That's just astonishing uh, elevation of Paul's work. The, the, the apostles realized Paul was really chosen by Jesus and his words had authority that were not like other people's words. It wasn't like oh, a good sermon. No, no, no. These are the very scriptures, the very God-breathed uh, word. Uh, so, this includes the New Testament as well. All right, we can move back to uh, 2 Timothy. So, looking at chapter 4, uh, verse 1, we're ready to go there? Yeah. Um, flowing out of all of that, um, again, remember, don't see chapter 4 there, like, flow from verse 17 of chapter 3 into cha chapter 4, verse 1. Try to, at times, remove the chapter and verse divisions to keep the flow of thought, because Paul has just been talking about the scriptures that point to Jesus. They're God-breathed. They're profitable in every way. And so, in when he says in verse 2 of chapter 4, preach the word, what word is he talking about? The word he's just been talking about. The, the Christ-centered scriptures that are all breathed out by God, every part of it profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness to make us equipped for every good work that God would call us to. That's the word he's talking about, the word that we are to, to preach, to herald, to proclaim. Um, you know, the, the, the word pictures, it's, you remember the old town criers, you know, they, they hear ye, hear ye, they, they'd open up their scroll and they'd relate the message, you know, in that weird, funny voice that they would do it in. 
Um, but that's literally what we are to be doing with God's word. We open it up. We proclaim what God has said um, and do our best to explain it. But as we said a couple, you know, several weeks ago, you know, our, our job is not to be creative with it. Our job is not to, to, to go where we want to go. It's to whatever we say is based on what is actually written. Like that is our guidepost. That is our guide. That is our boundaries, our fences. We don't go outside of that. We only stick with what is here when we preach the word. And again, we are, we are announcing something. We're making a message known. We're not just giving nice advice or, or good counsel. Um, we are proclaiming something, announcing it in the very authority of God himself. Not that we have the authority, but it's the message that, we ha- that has the authority. Again, if you think of the town crier delivering a message from the king, if you refuse what the crier is saying, you're refusing the king. It's not like, well, I accept the authority of the king, but not you. Well, the king is speaking through the the crier is speaking through the messenger. And so as in so far as what we say is faithful to this, we are all bound to it. Yeah. I'm just going to read verses one and two of chapter four here. Uh, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And just uh, thinking about these first two uh, verses, I think, Greg, you mentioned last time that the weight of this, the solemnity of verse one, I mean, it doesn't get weightier than this. And Alistair Begg, he told this story. He's got lots of sermons on Second Timothy. You can watch on YouTube, recommend, recommend his sermons. But he said, told this story that early on, I think in his ministry at Parkside Church in Ohio, uh, somebody, a member of his church took him out to eat and sat down with him. And in, during the conversation, this guy said, uh, I can speak behind a box just as well as you can, is what he told Alistair Begg. And Alistair Begg, was, that's what you think I'm doing? You think I'm standing behind a box and speaking? That's what, that's what you think preaching is? He said, like, he didn't understand the biblical idea of preaching. He said, I, this is, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. This is a weighty thing. I am accountable to God you know, for what I'm saying up here, heralding this message. And then he said, not only that, he said, I'm keeping watch over your soul. I'm keeping watch over your wife's soul, your children's souls, and all the members of Parkside Church's souls. He said he didn't understand the biblical picture. And he said, over time, the guy did come to understand uh, what was going on. He said, he's a, he's a good friend, but he just didn't understand it. I mean, this is a weighty thing. Verse one, verse, I mean, just incredible weighty thing, pastoral ministry. But then verse two about preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Uh, lots of illustrations we could use on this, be ready in season and out of season. I think it's whether it's convenient or not, we need to, we need to preach the word. And a quick story from George Whitfield's life that I, I mentioned him just a second ago. His life is worth studying. He has flaw, flaws for sure. Oh my goodness, what he, what he did, he traveled like crazy, 1700s. He traveled across the Atlantic, I think seven times he came to the United States. I mean, spent tons of time, I think years of his life on a boat. He, he, he was a part of the awakening in, in Europe. And then he came to the United States. He would preach outdoors with this booming voice and uh, would reach uh, Benjamin Franklin calculated. Benjamin Franklin was an atheist, but close friends with him. And he walked, stepped way, I mean, just way out. The, the, his voice just, it must've been an incredible voice without amplification. People could hear and genuine revival would break out when he, when he preached. But the last time he came to the United States, he was, he preached in the morning in Massachusetts and he, he's weary. I mean, it's the very end of his life. And he traveled to Newburyport, Massachusetts. He went to stay with a pastor named Jonathan Parsons. And he told Jonathan Parsons, he said he was weary. He said he's going to have an early dinner and he's going to go to bed early. I mean, he's just worn out. And he had his dinner. And then, but all of a sudden there was a crowd gathered because they heard Whitfield is here. They gathered around the house and they came inside the house and Whitfield was halfway up the stairs and they're pleading with him to preach. I mean, this is not, uh, this is out of season. I mean, he's about to die. He is weary and tired. This is not a, uh, this is not in season. But then Whitfield, the, the biographer said, unwilling, despite his weariness, to forgo any opportunity to declare the gospel. He responded to the request and stood halfway up the stairs. He has a candle in his hand. He just started preaching Christ. He's holding this candle. He's weak. But then all of a sudden, as he's preaching about Christ and him crucified, he was soon greatly alive to his subject. And he just passionately lifting up the Savior until that candle went all the way out. He went upstairs, had a rough night, and he would die in the night early in the morning. He would go to be with Jesus, but it just in season or out, whether it's convenient or not. But here's the application. It's not just to preachers, I don't think. It's really to all of us. So I was thinking this. If you're talking to someone, maybe it's a coworker who's not a believer, you've been trying to reach them with the gospel, or maybe it's a neighbor, uh, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a child. 
You've been trying to reach them, and all of a sudden a day comes where you're just not feeling that great. You just don't want to be bothered by somebody. And they come to you that day, and they say, remember that passage we were talking about? Maybe it's your son and said, remember that passage, Dad? You just don't even want to talk. Can we talk about that passage? Well, we should be ready. In season, out of season, we should be wanting to talk about Jesus no matter what it is, no matter how we're feeling. We should be ready to preach, whether it's convenient to us or not. We should be ready to proclaim the gospel and the Savior. That's good. That's very helpful. You know, verse 1 could have been left out, and the verse would still make perfect sense. It would just start with verse 2. It would just say, preach the word, and that would make perfect sense. There's no real reason to put verse 1 in there, except that there is a reason. The, the reason verse 1 is there is to add just incredible uh, magnitude to what's going on. I mean, wh where else does Paul ever stop and just say, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus? He could have stopped there. Who is to judge the living and the dead? He could have stopped there. And by his appearing and his kingdom. Paul could have stopped at any point, but he adds one phrase on top of another saying, listen, final judgment is real. It's coming. Jesus is really coming back. God is going to judge all people, living or dead, through Christ. Therefore, it is all the more urgent that you preach the word. You've got to preach it faithfully, whether it's popular or not. I think when it's not popular, it's more important to preach it because that's when people especially need to hear it. But it's always, it's always the right thing to do, no matter when it, when it is. He says, reprove, rebu rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Verse 3. Now, this takes us back to that vice list from the other chapter a little bit. Verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound or healthy teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, just in verse 6 of chapter 3, it says there, uh, talks about these women led astray by various passions. And that exact same Greek word is used again here. They gather teachers to suit their own passions. Exact same uh, word there. And I think these two parts of the text inform each other. So, people have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. Inwardly, there's love of self, love of money, there's disobedience, there's all these bad things going on inwardly, but there's an outward veneer, right? A superficial veneer of religiosity and Christianity. And those people, Paul says, are not going to be able to endure sound teaching. It, it, it's, it's nails on a chalkboard to, if someone talks about hell for more than about 30 seconds, just it, you, this is what, can I just be honest here? Um, there, there, is such a, there is a way to preach about hell that is hateful in its tone. You know, like you're almost glad about, you know, I, I love the fact that you might be, okay, that, that's, 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 people call that, people often caricature that as hellfire and brimstone preaching. And I would say that there's not a lot of that today, okay? I, I, people who say that, you know, if you talk about hell for 30 seconds, they start calling you names like hellfire and brimstone preacher. I go, okay, well, that would qualify Jesus as a hellfire and brimstone preacher because he talks about hell Gehenna, more than anyone in the Bible. He talks about it several times more than anyone in the Bible, and he is constantly interjecting in his words. You know, you, you, they asked him a question, and then suddenly, before long, he's talking about people being kicked out of the feast, and, and weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the eternal fire, and the, 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 just incredibly graphic and intense language from Jesus, the, the very person our culture tends to say nice things about, but if you actually read the unedited Jesus, people often don't actually like what, what he'll say oftentimes. So, because people don't want to hear what the Bible really says about fill in the blank, it could be anything, the holiness of God, final judgment, the lake of fire, weeping and gnashing of teeth, biblical perspectives on morality, whatever it may be, the exclusivity of the gospel, these things to the carnal heart are not pleasurable to listen to. They are undesirable to be a part of. And so over time, people like this who have a form of godliness but deny the power will eventually drift away from churches that teach that way. They will drift toward churches that will not confront the parts that are unpopular. That they will not confront the parts of Scripture, they won't bring them up that are not particularly popular in our culture. And so your itching ears get to hear what your flesh wants to hear, which is you either... You don't say much at all about final judgment. You don't really mention hell ever. You may mention sin in a joking way, but you really don't mention sin. I mean, again, I'm not going to name names tonight. There's a place to do that. But there's a very popular preacher, very popular preacher, uh, who works, you know, they're always in the Bible. They're always in the Bible. This person almost never mentions sin in their preaching. 
Uh, never. Uh, and and uh, one time I've heard the person mention sin, it was almost in a joking way, almost like making a joke about that. But biblically, you can't read five verses without bumping into the doctrine of depravity. It's just, I mean, read, this, read these two chapters and tell me if you can bump into our depravity. But because our flesh does not want to hear that, we can't endure the sound teaching, so we accumulate teachers in the plural. It's always easy to find these people. We, we, we find people who will tell us what our itching ears long to hear. And it's usually a me-centered gospel, a I'm so valuable gospel, I'm so wonderful gospel, I'm not that bad gospel, I'm not that lost gospel, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really deserve hell gospel. God just thinks I'm the best thing in the world and God just, you know, God, what would the universe be if it wasn't for us? God would just be all lonely if it wasn't for me brightening heaven's doorways when I walk in. And we, 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 I, I'm slightly caricaturing the message, but it's not that far from what you'll actually hear. God wants you to have your dreams fulfilled. Well, maybe. Maybe my dreams are full of my idols. Maybe my biggest desires for my life are actually egotistical. Maybe they're about me being promoted and self-centered and all about how great I am. Maybe it's all about money or something that my dreams are about. Well, I know people who preach about your dreams being fulfilled in almost every sermon. They never define what they mean by the dreams, and so you can fill it in with whatever you happen to have in your heart, which may be carnal. It may be godly. But if you never actually go through the process of discerning that, you can, you can gather quite a hearing, but it may not be healthy. I would say that's probably why verse five, he says, as for you, always be sober minded because it's easy. It's almost like um, a form of drunkenness or like a, a high. You get so caught up in these wrong pursuits and getting your, your, um, your, that, that itch scratched. I mean, you think about it. If, if, if you've ever been driving down the road and you get that itch in your, on your foot, <laughs> And you can't reach it no matter how much you're trying. And it is one of the most aggravating things in the world. You almost get in a wreck because you're trying to get your finger right under that spot on your foot. Um, but when you finally get it, everything else is gone. You're so focused on the relief of getting that itch scratched. And I think that's what Paul says, be sober-minded don't get so caught up in your, your fleshly desires being satisfied that you completely miss what God has. Um, and it, like, it, it's, and this is where it, we talked about earlier. It's hard to do this. It's much easier when our sin desires to be satisfied to satisfy it. It's much easier to give in to sin than it is to say no to sin and yes to Christ and yes to the word and to keep that focus. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why the more we know scripture um, the more we, 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 one, we memorize it, but two, we have an, an understanding of all that it teaches. Like we're able to let that be our guiding light when our sin is darkening our ability to think and see and reason. Like scripture, we go to scripture. It says, um, you know, when, when, when sin is tempting, we, whatever the temptation may be, um, you know, to, to look at something, for instance, that we shouldn't be looking at or watch something we shouldn't watch, you know, in that moment, it's, it seems like it'd be easier just to give in to sin. But in reality, you know, you know, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. That's clarity. That's light in the darkness. And we can say, I won't see God. I'm hindering my ability to see God in this moment. If I give in to this temptation to look at something that I ought not to look at. And so that's, that's how scripture gives us a, a sobriety, a clear headedness um, is, is, is it shows us the right way when everything in us is desiring something different. Yeah, I, just a couple quick things on that. Uh, again, uh, quoting Alistair Beck, he said, if you look hard enough, you will find someone telling you exactly what you want to hear. He said, especially now with Google, I mean, you can just find whatever you want to hear. But then he just made the point, he said, you would never do this with doctors. Like if you have something wrong with you, you never try to find a doctor that would tell you good news when you've got cancer inside. You would never do that with your physical body. But with matters of the soul, people do it all the time. I just thought that was crazy. It just seems so illogical. Why would we do this? Uh, we never do this with the body, but then people do it all the time with the soul. Sad deal. No, that, that is absolutely true. Um, one thing to ask if you're listening to some, a preacher or something would be, um, what are you, the gist of the sermon, over and over and over again, it, what are you being saved from in this sermon? What are you being saved by in the sermon? And what are you being saved for in the sermon? I mean, the right answer should ultimately be, I'm being saved from my sin and God's judgment. I'm being saved by Jesus and his atoning death and resurrection. I'm being saved for eternity and fellowship with God by his spirit. Right? That would be the right answer, right? Saved from sin by Jesus for the Trinity, for, for a fellowship with God. Now, a pastor may say that's what he's preaching, but if the gist of every sermon is that really what you're being saved from is, you know, being without a job 
or, or not, not having the kind of career that you want, not having the family life that you want, not having the kind of ambitions that you want satisfied. And so Jesus may be useful to get you to your dream fulfilled or whatever it may be. But if over and over and over you start getting this sense that all this person's trying to do is make me either one outwardly moral, trying to get rid of some bad habits, that's all they're trying to do, or trying to kind of have my ambitions there, my, my dreams fulfilled. Is it really sin judgment saved by Jesus for fellowship with God and his people? Is that sort of the constant refrain of what's being talked about? Are those the big emphases at the end of the day, God's glory being supreme in all of that? Uh, is that what it's about? Or is it about my glory, something else? Would we want to say then that like, you know, a lot of churches have statements of faith um, and a lot of churches will have very orthodox, like right doctrine in their statements of faith, but we can find out what a church is really believing and what it's really about the listening to the preaching. Yep. Um, because there's a lot of churches that have orthodox, like confessions, orthodox doctrine, at least on paper, but then you listen to their preaching and it's anything but what they have on paper. Like, and so what we really believe and, you know, pray for us as a church that we would always, you know, what, what we're preaching lines up with what we say we're about. Um, because I think we have a good statement of faith. Um, it's got a lot of good doctrine in it. Um, but if we're not preaching what's in that, you know, that's, that summary of biblical doctrine, then we need to change our statement because what we preach is what we really believe. That's great. I just got to mention one more thing. So one of these unnamed pastors, very popular, uh, said, uh, I just remember this, and this person's one of those big, uh, God's going to fulfill your dreams. I and mean, that's almost every, so I've listened to a lot of his sermons. Almost every sermon is God's going to fulfill your dreams. And uh, I just remember one sermon clip was Jesus came out of the grave so that God could fulfill your dreams. That was the actual quote. And I thought, okay, you just did it. You took the right solution and applied it to the wrong problem, right? Jesus coming out of the grave is the solution to what we need. But my biggest problem in life is not that my ambitions may not be fulfilled. And if you preach that way, who doesn't want to hear that God raised Jesus so that he can raise your dream, he can resurrect your dreams? That's what he said. Jesus came out of the grave so that God could resurrect your dreams. I don't know if I said it right. That, that's what he said. And I just thought, that, that's, you, you've done it. It sounds biblical because there's a Bible verse attached to it, and you're talking about resurrection, so it sounds like the gospel, but you're applying it not to the sin problem and the judgment problem. You're applying it to the dreams issue, like my, my ambitions, and, and I, you're, you're, you're starting to distort the entire message that way. Okay, uh, verse 6. Paul's going to sort of give us here his present, his past, I think John Stott mentioned this, and his future. His present, verse 6, for I am presently being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now he looks back into the past. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now he looks forward. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Yeah, I can just jump. There's so much in these verses. Uh, hard to try to pick exactly what to, to say. I'll, I'll read verse 6 here real quick. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. One thing I thought of is just I'm so thankful that we have examples of people who have finished well, Paul being, being one of them. But again, uh, quoting Beg again, he, he said that you take Paul's life, and I'll just mention this. If you think of his life as a biography, two-volume biography, uh, here, here's this volu- if you pull volume one out, this is volume one from 1 Timothy 1. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. That's volume one of, of Paul's biography. Then volume two is this, but I received mercy. So ver- mercy is this big thing of volume two, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, etc. So that mercy and grace is, is volume two. And, and one, one, uh, one guy said, from the time of his conversion, so mercy breaks in, grace breaks into his life on the Damascus Road. Everything he had was given to God. His wealth, his body, his brilliant mind, his passions, his position, his reputation, his relationships. Everything was given to God. He just lived all out uh, for, the, for the Lord. And, and again, according Beck, he said he was watching, I think it was a high school graduation. He was watching all these young kids go up and getting their diploma. And he said he, as he was thinking about that, he was thinking most of them probably have their whole lives in front of them. And he was thinking, 
What are they going to give their lives for? What are they going to live for? What are we going to die for? Uh, what are we going to pour our lives into? I mean, that's a great question to ask even to young people. Are, are we pouring out our lives uh, for Christ? And again, to quote, quote Whitfield, just because I was looking at him this afternoon, he said at the very end of his life, he said, I want to run at full stretch for him who was stretched for us. Christ was stretched on the cross. I want to just be running at, at full stretch again in light of the grace we've received. We want to be running at full stretch. And again, thankful for these examples of people who finish well. They're so good to study people who finished all the way to the end. I think it's, it's significant in verse 7. Uh, he says, I've fought the good fight. Another way you could look at that is waged the good warfare. Uh, Paul's already talked about kind of the primary driver that we looked at in uh, chapter chapter 2. Uh, he spent a little more time on the soldier aspect. And so I think it's, 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 it's very likely we can translate this wage the good warfare um, he also uses the race metaphor, uh, but we have to remember, and we mentioned this before, every day is a spiritual battle, and we have to look at the entirety of the Christian life as a spiritual battle. I've heard it said, um, I have no idea who this was original with, but like our, our, um, our D-Day was, um, was the cross. Like the decisive victory took place at the cross, and then everything after that is our battles fought in light of that victory. Mm -hmm. um, once D-Day happened in World War II, the inevitable victory of the allies in Europe, it, it was inevitable. Um, but they still had battles to fight, even though the decisive victory had been, had, had been won. And so Paul was able to endure um, all manner of persecutions, all manner of sufferings, because he knew that at the cross, the greatest victory had been won, and he was already fighting on the winning side. Now, we have, to, we have to remind ourselves winning, like, you know, so we don't go the dreams route, doesn't always mean earthly victories. As we're going to see, Paul's about to, to be put to death for his, his preaching. But that's his victory, is, is dying for the gospel. Um, it's because he didn't compromise. It would be very, think about how tempting that is, knowing that all he had to do was stop preaching Jesus. If you just say, I'm not going to do that anymore, they might let him live. And how many testimonies in church history um, ha ha bear that same mark of if you just stop preaching Jesus, you can go free. You can have your job. Your wife won't get a bullet through her head because the gun's there. Just stop preaching Jesus. And in fact, the, one of the biggest victories you can win is staying faithful to Jesus even when life is hardest and the situations are direst. Um, and I think that's where Paul is. He's waged the good warfare. He has fought every battle. He's got one more to fight. Um, I think he, I don't think it would be contrary to what he's saying. He knows he, he's about to go be with Jesus and he can't wait to get there. Um, that's great. So hold your spot here and turn to the, to Philemon, a couple books to your right, just past Titus. Jumping off what they just said. Persevering to the end, for a genuine believer, we believe in the perseverance of the saints, that genuine believers will persevere, but I do not think it's an automatic thing, like you just kick back and it just happens to you. No, 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 this is something that we, uh, by God's grace, are active in, uh, to persevere, and not everyone does. Um, look, look at Philemon, uh, and uh, just one chapter, so look down at verse 23, this is Paul's greeting in Philemon. Listen to this, Epaphras... My fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Now, just look at that list. Verse 24, two of the, what, four men in that particular verse wrote gospels in your New Testament, Mark and Luke. And Luke ended up writing Acts. You know, Luke wrote more than a fourth of your New Testament, in terms of word count, was written by Luke alone. So, Mark and Luke write a gospel each. And then in between them are Aristarchus and this guy, Demas. Now, many of you know about Demas probably, but Demas right here is called one of Paul's fellow workers along with two authors of two books of the New Testament, not just any books, gospels. So Demas is in company with Paul, who's going to write almost half the books of the New Testament, with Luke, who wrote a fourth of the volume of the New Testament, and with Mark, who wrote uh, the gospel of Mark. They're all together. And Demas, out of that group, Demas does not apparently persevere in his faith, but falls away and apostatizes from the Christian faith. Turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Obviously, 2 Timothy is written later, a couple years later than, Col uh, than Colossians and Philemon. 2 Timothy 4, verse 9, 
do your best to come to me soon in, in the prison. For Demas, same guy, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Let me continue. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me uh, for ministry. Uh, Tychicus is, uh, I have sent to Ephesus. Okay. That should put some, some holy fear in every single professing Christian on the planet, because He's in company with authors who wrote a large part of the New Testament, and he himself falls in love with the world. His faith that looks so genuine shrivels up to nothing. He begins, he doesn't want to get in trouble with Paul. He might, you know, if you hang out with Paul in prison, you could get possibly executed yourself. You don't know what the the, the repercussions could be, identifying with a guy who's about to get capital punishment. You don't want to risk that. You love this world. You love this life. You love the pleasures of this world. So you got to get away from Paul because Paul is always around trouble. And if he's about to be executed and I'm hanging out with him near the prison, they might it might be guilt by association. I don't want to be associated with Paul. I love this world too much to risk my life with Paul. I'm out of here. I'm going to go have the good life right now, away from all this missionary martyrdom stuff. I'm going to go hang out in Thessalonica. I'm going to go have a good time there. I'm going, to, I'm going to avoid this Christian community, and I'm going to get out, and I'm going to have my fun while I can. And that seems to be where he's left. Now, did he repent? I don't know. It's possible he repented later. We don't get any information about that. But here at this moment, it looks not good at all for, for Demas. Yeah, and just one, one commentator just said this. He said, I can testify that over years of ministry, the greatest heartaches have not come from enemies, but from those who began so well, who raised my hopes high, only to become lovers of this world rather than lovers of Christ. I was thinking about a guy that you've mentioned before uh, that we both benefited from his ministry. And then uh, really, I saw him slowly drifting. Like, he wasn't mentioning, he quit his church and then he's not mentioning God. And I think something is not right. And then he comes out and just says he's, he's rejecting Christianity. He's not a Christian anymore. I remember the night I, I saw that. It just, I couldn't even sleep that night. I just felt like, oh, the way, I can't imagine what Paul felt with Demas. He must have felt this way. But I just thought of, of a question of, you know, how does someone become a Demas is what I was thinking. And it doesn't happen overnight. Like this is the, the drifting. I thought of you, Papa Fred, is the Hebrew's language of drifting. It's like this ship coming in uh, to, to a harbor or something like that and slowly misses the harbor and just slowly drifts away to destruction. That's how it happens. It happens like slowly and incrementally. And again, uh, this is actually from Bunyan. This guy was stealing this from Bunyan. But Bunyan apparently said... Uh, how does this happen? He says, they cast off by degrees their private duties. What, what does he mean? Well, he says, they, they start laying aside prayer, scripture reading, fellowship, starting pushing away the means of grace. Slowly, maybe you, you miss the Bible a little bit, and then all of a sudden you, you stop praying, and your prayer life is dried up, and then you start saying, I'm not going to go to church that much, and then all of a sudden you've gone maybe two weeks without reading the Bible, and it, the drift begins to take place. And then all of a sudden, it doesn't matter who we are. Like if Jerry was here, it doesn't matter. Any of us who neglect the Bible for a week or two, the weeds of sin are going to rise up. It doesn't matter how sanctified you are. You, you neglect the means of grace. Sin rises up. And he, Bunyan said, we begin to play with little sins. Like little sins don't, don't bother us. And so then you have your heart begins to grow hard toward Jesus. And then at the end, you're not thinking seriously about God, death, or the coming judgment anymore. And that's how it takes place. So I would think the application is uh, twofold, really. It, it's, it's community related. So let me just read Hebrews 3. We love Hebrews 3. Uh, 12 and 13, take care, brothers, lest there be in any any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So one application would be we need to look out for each other, help each other in the race. If someone is is drifting, we should come alongside them, help them out and... uh, I use this illustration, I think, multiple times, but you can, you can watch it on YouTube. The Olympics are going on now, but this 1992 Olympics, a guy named Derek Redmond from the UK is running a 400-meter race. I think it's a semifinal race. I think halfway through, he, he pulls up with an injury, and he, he, he's on the ground with his injury. The race is over, and he gets up, and he tries to, tries to finish this race. He's like skipping on one leg, trying to finish, and he's in agony. His dad sees him, and it's a moving clip to watch. His dad comes racing out of the stands, comes beside him, puts his arm around him. His son is just in tears. He's bawling, got his hand on his head, and his father slowly brings him to the finish line. It's just a beautiful picture of how we should be as Christians, coming alongside people, helping them. Like that's number one. But number two is if we are struggling spiritually, if we are laying aside the means of grace, we need to tell people, tell people, I'm not doing well spiritually. Please help me. I'm struggling. And I, I know Jose probably wouldn't mind me saying this, but I think it was early on in his Christian life. He told us in our book club, he, I think he wrote, he just said he was struggling reading his Bible. And we just all started reading Titus together. But if he never would have said that, we don't know this. And so we just need to be honest about where we are spiritually to get the community around us. And we need to be looking out for people to help them uh, from drifting. But let me just, just add to that. That is exactly right. It is a sign of health to admit when we are weak. 
It is a sign of health to say, here's areas I've sinned. Here's areas I'm struggling. Here's areas where I'm not doing what I need to be doing. Here's areas where I'm failing. Like, please, I need people to know that. Help me. Uh, pray for me. Keep me accountable. It, please don't be embarrassed to, to say that. Because it, it is. It can be embarrassing to say, to admit, like, okay, I'm, I'm not doing as well as I, as, I, as I maybe I look like I'm doing or whatever it may be. And so if we can be very honest with each other, confess that to each other, get around each other, it's like that. You, you know, you, you, you tore a muscle spiritually. You fell over and someone's got to come alongside and pick you up and help you keep going. I mean, that, that, is, that is how we persevere. And, and if, you, if you sort of stuff it and ignore it, one of two things happens. One is you just suddenly, like, you just, you just disappear all of a sudden. Like, you just, you, you can't, like, reading the Bible becomes intolerable. Then go into the small group. Just, there's, I would just way rather watch TV than go to the small group tonight. Just way rather. And then, then suddenly it's like, well, church is just a burden to go there, and there's so much stuff you got to do. And I just want to skip that. And I, I skip, you skip it a couple weeks, three or four weeks, and it kind of, you kind of prefer that now. And suddenly your preferences start changing. Suddenly you're kind of embarrassed when someone from church texts you or calls you, or you see someone in the store from church. You're like, I don't want to see those people. And what's happening is over the course of six months or even a couple of years, your whole inward self has changed. And now you, when someone asks you to go, you're just like, I, you, you either start with excuses or you just say, I just frankly don't want to go anymore. And, and, and there's not even that effort. And so we, before we get to that point, we've got to early on start talking, you know, uh, that, that something's wrong. We, we need help early on when, there, when, there's, when there's need. We need to tell people. Uh, you don't have to tell the whole world. You don't have to go on social media and say, here's everything wrong with me today. You don't have to do that. But you can find people you trust and love and you can say, Here, here's what's going on. Please help me. It's good to be vulnerable. Um, but I, I think like we have to be ready for a little bit of awkwardness on this. Um, I mean, because what, what do we do? I mean, let's be honest. We see people, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Do you really want somebody to like start pouring out their heart? No, actually, I'm, I, I am doing terrible right now. I haven't been reading my Bible. I've been struggling with X, Y, and Z, and, and I don't feel close to God. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like praying. I've been entertaining all kinds of ungodly thoughts. I mean, it's, you know, La Perea, who wants to hear that when you're getting your ticket? Um, but I mean, the point is, we need to be ready for a little bit of awkwardness, Okay. Um, but we need to be willing to listen um, and be willing to, to share our struggles. Now, I'm not saying do that with just anybody. Make sure it's somebody you know and you can trust. But at the same time, let's, let's shift the culture. I don't even know the right mm -hmm. wording for this. But so that we don't get to the point where Demas is, like we've got to be willing to have those conversations and be willing to, to put ourselves out there and trust that our community is not going to, you know, I can't believe they're struggling with that, like, you know, but they're going to they're gonna put their arms around us and, and love us and, and care for us and pray with us and, and check up on us. I mean, like that, that, that kind of culture. I mean, you guys do this uh, is in, in an amazing, more than, than churches I've seen. But, you know, let's, re, let's continue to do it, recommit ourselves to it, um, and maybe work at being even more open. Uh, just so what happened to Demas doesn't happen to us. Moving into our last section here. Uh, we, we're going to sort of see contrasted uh, some of uh, the relationships around Paul. Uh, months ago, I heard another pastor talking about this passage say that uh, you see here, Paul has strong enemies and weak friends. Uh, you'll, you'll see that as we walk through it. Not, not all of his friends are weak. Some of them are, are strong too. But he's got strong enemies, some weak friends, but then a strong friend as in Jesus. So let's look at some of these here. Uh, start again at verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Just again there, I didn't mention this in the sermon, but remember, John Mark had failed with Paul, remember? He, he just said, I can't keep going. I got to go back home. I cannot stay on this missionary journey. It's probably too hard, or he was afraid. And here, at the end of his life, Mark had turned a corner. He had repented. He had shown himself to be, you know, really restored. And so, Paul here says really high words to say he's very useful to me. Uh, Tychicus, again, no idea if that's pronounced correctly, probably not. I have sent to Ephesus, when you come, uh, Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Uh, again, I don't like to speculate. Some people wonder if Paul was actually arrested at Troas, which was a port city near Philippi. They were just at it a couple weeks ago in the sermon. And uh, that might explain why all of his books and his coat are there. Maybe Paul was arrested right there on the spot, taken to Rome, and all of his belongings were left at Troas. We don't know for sure. But what I love here is Paul is within months, maybe within weeks of his death, and he wants his books. Th that is astonishing. 
He says, bring the books and the parchments. This, you know, we don't know for sure, but this has got to include some Old Testament uh, books for sure. Uh, people wonder how much of the New Testament, uh, how much of Jesus' sayings or gospels do we have at this point? We don't know for sure, but Paul is asking for biblical content and things he could either write letters on or whatever the parchments may all be. But th- this, is, this involves reading. So Paul has a few weeks to live and he wants his Bible. That's just astonishing. I, I love this. He, he's got almost no, nothing he can do there. He's stuck and he wants the books and the parchments. I'm Spurgeon. Has, I don't know if you saw Spurgeon's sermon on that where he just goes on and on about like he said Paul had written the major part of the New Testament and yet bring me the books. He, want, he wants the books and he just the application was we should want to study and read like rich theological books. I mean I think that should just be a steady part of our diet. I mean just think about where you would be spiritually without rich theological books. I think that should be a challenge to us. Paul with a few weeks left to live. Bring me the books. Uh, yeah we should just want to read rich theology. Amen. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. There's a strong enemy in Alexander the coppersmith. At my first defense, verse 16, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. And just real quick, why does he ask for one person to have their sins land on them? right? The Lord will repay him according to his deeds, Alexander, in verse 14. So, he, it's almost an imprecatory prayer. It's like, the Lord will bring justice to Alexander. And then he turns right around and says, these other people deserted me. May the Lord forgive them. May the Lord not hold it against them. Well, the difference is, the group that, that was struggling to stand by Paul, they were uh, Christians. I mean, I don't think he's referring to Demas. He's referring to these guys who are doing ministry, who were not able to be with Paul at this moment. So, he says, listen, if there's any sin there, the Lord forgive them. But this guy, Alexander, was a full-blown antagonist to the gospel itself and was doing all he can. Some people speculate Alexander may have been the guy who got Paul arrested. Hard to know that for sure. But uh, whatever it was, he opposed the message so strongly that uh, Paul, Paul has strong words of warning there. I think uh, looking at verse 17, you know, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. You hear the, the refrain of, of the hymn Luther wrote, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Um, even if our closest friends and companions desert us, Jesus never does. He never does. And not only does he not desert us, what does Paul say he did? He stood by me and strengthened me. God will give you the strength you need in the moment you need it. We don't try to prepare ahead of time and say, let me store up strength for this trial because we don't know when trials are going to come. We don't know when Paul, Paul wasn't looking for this. There's no telling how quickly he was arrested, how he was treated, where, you know, we don't know the timeline. Was it, was he beaten again? We don't know. All we know is that he was on trial. He needed strength and Christ strengthened him. And Christ will do that for each one of us, for all those unplanned moments when we, when it just hits us, blindsiding us. And we're like, how in the world am I going to make it through this? Am I going to give an apt response? Christ will strengthen you. Trust in him in that moment um, to be that strength that you need. Yeah, I, I try to be concise. I know we're almost, we're, we're getting close to the end of the time here, but I can't help but think of John Patton when, when I read this. Uh, and y'all probably know this. I mean, I'm sure I've told this before. Uh, he took the gospel to cannibals, but he goes there with his wife. His wife is pregnant. And uh, soon after they landed there, uh, she gives birth to a baby boy. And he talked about the joy that that brought. I mean, can you imagine that on this island there? They're trying to reach these violent uh, cannibals. And they've got this precious baby boy, but all of a sudden she gets sick. His wife gets sick and then she dies. And he has to, he has to dig her grave. I just can't imagine that. He digs her grave, buries her, but he's got this little precious boy, just a few weeks old, and then he gets sick, and he dies, and he has to dig the grave. And he puts them both in the grave. And just can you imagine the suffering that must have been like? But this is what he said. Stunned by that dreadful loss and entering upon the field of labor to which the Lord had himself so evidently led me, my reason seemed for a time almost to give way. The ever merciful Lord sustained me. He strengthened me, came behind, beside me and strengthened me. And that spot, he's talking about the, the graves, became my sacred and much frequented shrine during all the following months and years when I labored on for the salvation of the savage islanders amidst difficulties, dangers, and deaths, but for Jesus and the fellowship he vouchsafed to me there, I must have gone mad and died beside the lonely grave. But the Lord stood by John Patton and strengthened him. And it's the Lord stood by Paul to strengthen, not just so he'd feel better, so he could proclaim the gospel message here in this setting. And he strengthened Patton to continue on in this very difficult uh, situation. Matthew 28, the end of verse 20, and behold, I am with you always 
to the end of the age. That was this precious promise that John Patton just clung to that promise in the midst of suffering, and, and Jesus was faithful to be there for him. Yeah, that, that uh, you know, Jesus is a merciful and sympathetic high priest. He is gentle and lowly. So, in moments when our friends fail us, I mean, Jesus can sympathize with us because in, in Gethsemane, his literal friends failed him, right? They fell asleep. In the most urgent moment in his entire human life, they're asleep multiple times when he goes back to find them. So, the Lord God the Father strengthens God the Son. He, the, the, Lord, the Lord Jesus is strengthened in that moment in his humanity to get through this trial. But the Lord knows, I mean, the tenderness of Jesus there is he knows from actual experience what it's like to have friends fail, to not come through. He knows what it's like in the most urgent, dire moment imaginable, something that we can never comprehend, the cup of wrath in front of him, and his friends are asleep, and he has to come back, and he has to, has to sort of wake them up and talk to them. Well, the Lord Jesus knows what that's like, and so he can come with us, he can come be near us, stand by us, and strengthen us in those moments where we, where we so desperately need him. And verse 18 says, the end of verse 17, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So there, the rescue of, of the Lord happens. I mean, think about this. He will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. I remember the first time I, this, this clicked in my mind. This was years ago. Safely, that sounds great. Safely into his heavenly kingdom. How did Paul go from this world to that world? Through a violent death. That's how he came safely into heaven. I just, it just hit me one day. The word safely is used to describe his beheading. The Lord will bring me safely into heaven. How? By my violent death. So even if the worst happens to you, believer, the Lord will bring you safely through the worst into his heavenly kingdom. No matter what happens to you, the worst imaginable thing, the Lord will bring you through that safely. Your soul will be untouched. I mean, as Jesus said, uh, you know, some of you will, will, will perish, but not a hair of your head will, will, will fall. Uh, you, you will be delivered. I think it's interesting too, real quick, the word rescue, uh, it's the same word um, in verse 17, verse 18, and also in um, chapter 3, verse... Um, verse uh, 11, when he says, you know, all these persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And so there's actually two, going along with what yep. you're saying, there's two ways God rescues us. One, he'll rescue us from our earthly trials in such a way that we are, you know, granted earthly freedom to live for Christ more. The other kind of rescue is he rescues us from our earthly trials in such a way that we are now free to be with him and live with him in his presence. So there's two kinds of rescue. One is earthly deliverance for more earthly life. Another one is a, a spiritual heavenly deliverance or rescue into the presence of Jesus. He'll do one or the other, but either way, he will rescue his people. And I think this gets back to something we've already said, why we have to be careful about like, you know, the gospels to just fulfill your dreams, this, that, and the other. You know, oh, God's going to deliver me. So much of contemporary Christian music is, you know, God, God's going to bring me through this trial and I'm, I'm going to be, you know, earthly, it's going to be some kind of earthly success where I can look and triumph. Well, what if your triumph is actually entering into the presence of Jesus? That's not actually less, that's more, that's more. And so we have to think of deliverance or rescue in either one of those ways. And Paul uses it in both those ways. He was delivered in an earthly sense to continue ministry, but then this time he's going to be delivered. He's going to be rescued. But it's not like those other rescues. It's actually better. All right, let's, let's conclude the letter here. Verse 19. Uh, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Uh, Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Putin's and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. It's interesting that the asking for the cloak and asking for him to come before winter is such a human thing, isn't it? Paul is cold. He's in a prison, possibly, again, that maritime prison where he says, listen, it's going to be a freezing cold winter and I've got almost nothing. Can you bring that cloak uh, with me there? And it's interesting, one other little tiny note. He says, he left Trophimus, in verse 20, who was ill at Miletus. Even Paul did not always have the ability to heal. I think that's an important thing to be said today. Uh, Paul left a man sick at Miletus when he left, which was a port city. So Paul was not always able to, to heal everyone at every point in his ministry. 
Well, I think we're out of time uh, on this. Uh, so much uh, that is just really edifying and helpful in this, in this letter. And uh, Greg, would you close us some prayer? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Our Father, uh, we are so thankful for your word. Uh, we're thankful for these weeks we've been able to spend in Second Timothy. And Lord, before that, looking at some very pressing uh, cultural issues that we need to be informed on. But Lord, help us take heart, uh, Lord, because we know that you are sovereign. God, according to your word, you, ha- you chose us, uh, Lord, for salvation, to receive grace. Lord, before the world began, uh, you saved us in, in time. You have called us to be your own. You have given us this precious deposit of the gospel Um, Lord, may we guard it with all our might because in the gospel is our forgiveness, it is our life, it is our righteousness, our eternal life, our fellowship with you. All of it comes in and through the gospel and may we never compromise on it. Uh, Lord, may we realize that there are going to be difficult times and not just from the world outside, but from those who profess to know you. But Lord, give us Uh, a spirit of endurance and perseverance as individuals and as a church, God, to to hold fast to the word of life, to continue in the scriptures that point us to Jesus and equip us, Lord, for everything you call us to do. Lord, help us to be a people always ready, whether it's convenient or not, to proclaim your word, to herald it to a world that needs it and to professing believers who need it. God, help us Uh, be diligent to keep our eyes set on our prize of being with Jesus. God, knowing that we might be delivered from earthly trials for more life and ministry here, but you also might deliver us in a greater way into the very presence of Christ, which is far better. Um, But Lord, help us be that community that encourages each other, that lifts one another up. Lord, that when we come up lame, uh, others come around. And they help us continue on in this race because our goal is to cross the finish line, Lord. And you are our strength so that even if we feel as though all have abandoned, you never do. And you give us the strength we need. But Lord, may it never be said of any in this church that we were like Demas, God, but that we stayed with one another through thick and thin, through the hard times, Lord, together holding on to the hope of that safe entrance into the heavenly kingdom of God. I thank you so much, God, for these these days that you've given us, these table talks. We're so grateful uh, for the good food and the fellowship, Lord, and we pray that it would bear fruit in our lives for, for days and months and years to come, our time together this summer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just thank you again for, for coming this, this, uh, this summer. Thank you for all who served with nursery. Uh, thank you all who helped with the food. Uh, is Holly, Holly, is that you? My glasses, I need better glasses. Can we give Wes and Holly a round of applause? Because they, they, they had so much, we just basically overloaded them with things to do. And they took care of all kinds of stuff from all the food set up to nursery and all kinds of headaches. And so thank you guys so much for how y'all served this summer. And Wes is like, please, please just stop. Uh, <laughs> but thank you all very much. And uh, we are done.